Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Before we start the show, here's a quick message from us at AJC. I'm Ku Kang Do, producer of People of the Pod. I'm usually behind the scenes, but not today. This is a defining moment. It's up to us to fight rising anti-Semitism and hate, take on those who challenge Israel's legitimacy, and safeguard our democratic values. Please consider making a year-end gift to AJC by visiting ajc.org donate. And thanks to a generous donor, all gifts will be matched up to $350,000. AJC is proud to be leading the way, but we can't do this alone. Join us. And now, a word from the Times of Israel. Hey everyone, I'm Sarah Tuttle-Singer, the new media editor at Times of Israel, and I'm so excited to tell you about our Times of Israel community that we've recently launched. This is a tremendous opportunity for behind-the-scenes insight, a place where we can get to know each other better, where we'll have live discussions with some of our leading journalists and our founding editor, David Horowitz. The Times of Israel's community is like having a backstage pass to your favorite show. I hope you'll sign up, you'll join us and be part of our community. And in order to do so, all you have to do is read an article on Times of Israel. And there at the bottom, we have a link so that you can be part of this really exciting initiative. Thank you so much. This week, France's National Assembly voted to endorse the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism. What is that, and why does it matter? Joining us now to help explain those important questions is Simone Rodin Benzikin, director of AJC Europe. Simone, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, can you remind me and remind our listeners, what is the IHRA definition and why is it important? Absolutely. Um, the IRA Working Definition on Antisemitism is a definition that was created uh, back in the early years of 2000, when really the first explosion of antisemitism really happened, most particularly in Western Europe. And there was a clear understanding that one of the problems that we were facing was in order to be able to combat antisemitism, you actually would have to have an idea of what it actually is. And we saw very clearly that anti-Semitism has changed. It wasn't only the traditional anti-Semitism that used to exist. It's something new. And so the Fundamental Rights Agency at the time had a different title, came up with a definition of anti-Semitism that included, and that's where it's interesting, that included particular reference of anti-Semitism when it is also linked to the hatred of Israel and gave very specific examples of it. So since then, a number of countries have adopted the working definition, and it is in particular useful um, also, of course, because it then needs to be implemented, meaning um, every country has the possibility to then train uh, prosecutors, police, education, in order to be able to recognize and appropriately deal with anti-Semitism. So you, you mentioned that a number of countries have adopted it. Are we talking, you know, small island nations or are we talking like titans of the Western world? 
Um, I think we can say the titans of the Western world. Uh, first of all, the uh, United States State Department has adopted the working definition. And then in Europe, where the problem is, of course, uh, very grave, uh, 16 countries have adopted the working definition. There are also national parliaments that adopted it. There are then um, specific institutions that adopted that. You can then, you know, trickle it down and have it at the local level, to have it at the universities. Uh, but yes, no, it's, it's some of the biggest countries in particular in Europe, including the United Kingdom, Germany, and now France, have adopted the working definition. So I'm glad you bring it to France because we heard that it passed the National Assembly. Uh, You know, I'm American. I know our system. We have our bicameral legislature. I know that France also has a bicameral legislature. The National Assembly is the lower house, and I think the, the Senate is the upper house. So I guess first I'm asking on a process level, how important is it that it passed the National Assembly? Does that mean that it's law or does it also need to pass the Senate? Does it need to be signed by the president? You know, is it now law in France? Um, No. So first of all, the reality is it was much more symbolic than anything else. But the symbolic nature doesn't take anything away from it, meaning it it is very important. And I'll explain to you why. In February 2000 of this year, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, announced that France would be adopting the working definition. So by the very statement of it, France adopted the working definition, Hmm. which means that it then um, can decide how it is used, uh, meaning um, then the the question of implementation appears. But in the first instance, the fact that the president of France said that France was adopting the working definition was sufficient. But nevertheless, so in theory, it it didn't need to go to parliament. Um, But parliament decided to nevertheless take up the issue um, and has, as the representative body of the legislative body um, actually um, also adopt the working definition. And there, the process was um, very long. It was supposed to be adopted first in May. It was pushed forward a couple of times. And also, it was difficult to get adopted, I have to say. It wasn't just a simple adoption in Parliament that happened within a second. There was a lot of debate, a lot of uh, disagreement. But we can certainly go into the detail of that. But it is in reality much more symbolic. And no, it is not law. The reality is that the working definition of anti-Semitism is in principle guidelines, meaning it is a working definition. The objective is not for it to be law. The objective is for it to be usable by by prosecutors, by police, by education ministries, by schools, by universities, in order to recognize, identify, and combat anti-Semitism in all of its forms appropriately. So you said we can come to the some of the specifics, so let's do that now. How do we feel about the vote total? Would you say that it was a landslide that it passed the National Assembly? I have to say that it was a very tough vote. In particular, the biggest surprise is that the governing party, the party of Emmanuel Macron en marche, was extremely split about the issue. So it was the governing party that brought forward the resolution. But ahead of that, within the party, there was a huge amount of disagreement, uh, debates, 
uh, dispute about the adoption of the working definition and about even the idea of putting forward a resolution. And that's why one of the reasons why I think it was also pushed a number of times within Parliament. Of course, let's be clear, the most sensitive part of the working definition and the reason why it caused such an amount of debate and disagreement is the Israel part. And the recognition that today there is a new form of anti-Semitism that is actually not so new anymore, but there is a form of anti-Semitism that clearly, you know, hides behind a sort of anti-Israelism uh, or anti-Zionism, uh, but in, that in reality is something um, very different. And it produced a huge number of debates um, within Parliament, also very very emotional. Um, we, AJC Paris, participated in a number of meetings and within Parliament, you know, the, the voices were heard. It was very loud. People started uh, even getting very emotional about it. So it's, um, it just proves the extent to which this uh, remains a very sensitive subject and sort of reveals something about something that has not really been dealt with, meaning the fact that there is a part of our political system, and in particular coming from the extremes of the political spectrum, mostly on the left, that have had an obsession about Israel over the past years that sometimes translates into anti-Semitism, or if it doesn't, that at least those parties bear a certain responsibility that there is today this new form of anti-Semitism. So even within the governing party, that debate existed and that debate was very vivid. And let me just add another point. It is the first time since Emmanuel Macron came to power that there is such a huge opposition within the party, within the governing party, on a particular issue. There were 23 votes within En Marche, within the governing party, against the working definition. It's the first time this has ever happened, which when you think about it and stop for, for a second, it's actually about anti-Semitism. So one could theoretically think that there's widespread consensus, but apparently there wasn't. Well, Simone, this decision to adopt the working definition is obviously a huge victory for France, for French Jews, and for Europe. And I know that you and your team deserve a huge amount of credit for making it possible. So thank you uh, for all of your hard work on that. And thank you for coming on to explain it to us here on People of the Pod. Thank you, Sophie. Last month, Tablet Magazine published an eyewitness account of a recent protest of Israeli speakers on a Canadian college campus through the eyes of a former Syrian refugee. Author Abu Dandashi had gone to York University that evening to thank the Israeli veterans for taking care of Syrian refugees in the Golan, a moment that altered his lifelong views about Israel. He was shocked to find on the college campus a scene that reminded him of living in and leaving Syria, a country that failed him and displaced him until a Jewish immigration society came to his rescue and helped him resettle in Canada. Aboud is joining us now to talk about how he overcame the anti-Zionist values with which he was raised. Also joining the conversation is Yotam Polizer, the co-chief executive officer of Israel, an Israeli-based NGO and AJC partner that serves refugees in more than 50 countries, including those who have fled Syria. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yotam, first, if you could give us a brief summary of what Israel does, in, in what capacity have you helped Syrian refugees? 
Sure. So Israel Aid is a non-governmental, non-political organization. We were established in 2001, and since then, we operated in 52 countries following crisis, both um, natural-related events like hurricane, tsunami, earthquake, um, including Puerto Rico, the recent uh, hurricane in the Bahamas, and man-made disasters such as the refugee crisis in Syria, but also the refugee crisis in East Africa and South Sudan, the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh and, and Myanmar and other places. Um, with the Syrian refugees specifically, we've been um, working since 2013, um, started in Jordan, actually um, providing trauma counseling and distribution of relief items to Syrian refugees in Jordan. And since 2015, when the influx of refugees to Greece and to Europe um, started, we have provided direct support, direct medical support and psychological support, and recently also educational support to over then 120,000 refugees, primarily from Syria, um, but also a lot of refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan, and even Iran. Um, and we are still operating in Greece and also in Germany, helping also with the um, long-term integration of refugees, because we know that it's not just about immediate support. The needs are really long-term, especially when we talk about the trauma or, um, or the, you know, the, the situation about jobs and, and income and livelihood. Um, so that's a lot of our focus now. Um, the Syrian refugee is very exciting for us specifically because it was a mixed team of both Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis and American Jews who, who joined together to provide this support. Um, unfortunately, very few organizations are still doing this work in Greece, and we're one of the few that's still there. So you're helping both in the camps as, as well as once they are resettled in, in new communities, Yes. Correct, yes. We still operate in Lesbos, where it's still a very much an emergency situation in the camps um, in Greece. Um, but we're also working in the city of the Saloniki in Berlin and in Frankfurt. In fact, exactly a year ago, um, Angela Merkel selected Israel out of more than 300 organizations and gave us the 2018 Integration Award for the work we did with um, Syrian refugees in Germany. Wow, congratulations. It's wonderful. Now, has the Syrian refugee crisis, has that become a disproportionate part of your work or not really? Uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, again, it's, it's interesting because we, did, we never thought it will actually operate in Europe, in places like Greece or Germany. But because the Syrian refugee crisis became such a huge humanitarian crisis on, on such a disproportionate level, um, we, yeah, we really scaled our response, and it is definitely one of our major operations. We've spent more than $2 million just on this project so far, and we've had a few hundred volunteers and staff members who provided direct support. So yes, it is definitely a major part of our work. So I'm curious, have you been able to observe or document how refugee resettlement impacts the Jewish communities in each country where uh, there are refugee populations resettled. You know, it's it's very it's it's tricky because um, I think it's still an early stage. Mm -hmm. um, I can talk about my own personal experience and our experience in Israel, and I want to say that we've um, 
communicated and provided direct support, again, to about 120,000 refugees um, who arrived on these boats to, um, to Greece. And um, in 99.9% of the cases, we've had very positive responses from the people towards our help. They knew that we're from Israel. We have, I mean, the organization is called Israel. We have a Star of David on our T-shirt. And um, sometimes they were really surprised. Um, in fact, one refugee told me, he was so shocked. He told me, my worst enemy became my biggest supporter. Oh, wow. After we um, helped his daughter who almost drowned and, we, um, and she was suffering from severe hypothermia. So we almost never encountered any negative reaction, definitely surprised. Um, and in many cases, I'll be very honest and say that these, these are people who, you know, struggle for survival. So in a way, they couldn't care less. They really needed any kind of support that was offered. Right. But I also think that because these people, uh, a lot of them were slaughtered by their leaders, political leaders, or by... Um, some of the extreme religious groups like ISIS or Nusra. And then all of a sudden, a group of Israelis, both Jews and Arabs, we had about 50-50 Arabs and Jews on our team, helped them. So I think it's a very confusing experience, but it's an amazing opportunity, not only to save lives, which is you know, our main goal, but also really to, to build bridges and to change people's perspective. Yes, yes. And that, that's a great segue to you, Aboud. First of all, thank you for sharing your very moving perspective in Tablet Magazine. Um, for listeners who have not read it, can you kind of give us a brief summary of your journey from Syria to Canada? Sure, thank you. Well, I guess uh, my story starts in 2010 when I was working in the Gulf and decided to take a break uh, uh, and go back to Syria uh, to uh, pivot to another, uh, to another career. I... Um, I would say that January 2011 was the best time of my life back in Syria. I just bought a house. I'd gotten engaged. My brothers had uh, surprised us by coming uh, coming from abroad and visiting uh, uh, visiting us in Syria. So all 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 brothers all of all of the brothers were together for the first time in years. So for me, 2011 January was the best time of my life, and I thought that life is looking great. Nothing can go wrong. Mm. Well, unfortunately, what happened was that in March of that year, the protests started in Syria. Uh, which then escalated to uh, to an armed confrontation, which then escalated into a civil war. Uh, so in 2013, I uh, left Syria and moved to Turkey. And uh, I would have liked to have uh, stayed in Turkey, but uh, Turkey made it uh, very hard for most Syrians to, to integrate uh, there. Hmm. Uh, and so in uh, late 2015, Canada, uh, actually when people ask me how did I come to Canada, I tell them that the one person who made it possible in the beginning was Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And he was uh, a conservative prime minister. Uh, you would not think that a conservative government would be friendly towards refugees, but Stephen Harper actually took a decision, which no other country uh, has uh, has done until now. What Stephen Harper did, he made the decision that any Syrian anywhere in the world will be considered a legitimate refugee, whether they're registered with the UN or not. Mm -hmm. And that made it possible for the Syrians in Turkey and Egypt and anywhere else to 
to be sponsored and to be able to uh, come to uh, to come to Canada through the private sponsorship program, which is also something which only Canada has, uh-huh. where you have uh, Canadian citizens or a Canadian organization will commit to uh, sponsoring a refugee. They'll put up uh, an amount of money for for the first year. Uh, they will help them uh, integrate into Canada. It's a fantastic system in Canada. It really really helps refugees to integrate in their first year. And yeah. so after a 19 months uh, application process, I arrived in Canada in July 2017. Okay. Now, what did you see that night at York that reminded you of Syria? Oh, God. Oh, dear me. I went up to York, you know, thinking there would be an event where I could meet uh, former members of the uh, of the IDF and just have a conversation with them, have a dialogue with them. Um, I knew that there was elements on the York campus that were opposed to any Israeli presence or any Israeli-related event. So I thought there'd be like 20, 30 people waving flags, shouting slogans, and that'd be it. What I did not expect was to see posters all over York with this uh, ominous-looking Israeli soldier and a Palestinian kid and, and Palestinian flags. It was, like, it was like the posters I would see in Amman when I used to study in Jordan. Mm. It was the same thing. I did not expect to see you know, 600 people going up the stairs, shouting their slogans through their loud phones, shouting Intifada, Intifada, which is an, a violent armed struggle. No matter how they try to satanize it, Intifada means a violent armed struggle, which has taken the lives of hundreds and hundreds of Israelis. So they go up the stairs, they were there going with every intention of disrupting the event. Hundreds and hundreds of people just couldn't stand the fact that maybe, I think, I think the event had maybe 50 people, most of them were elderly Jews, mm. you know? They oh. just wanted to talk to these uh, reservists. Why, why was that an abomination? Yeah. And I could see from the makeup uh, of the, from the demographical makeup of the protesters, they weren't all Arabs. I think maybe Arabs maybe uh, constituted a third. Hmm. Of, the, of the people who were, who were demonstrating. If there weren't policemen there, they would have gone in and disrupted it. They were banging on the doors. They were using loudspeakers to make sure that we heard them inside the uh, auditorium. You know, they did everything they could and they, and they, and they made sure to cover every single entr- uh, exit from mm-hmm. that auditorium. Make yeah. sure that they were present at every single exit. We, in the end, the police said that if you want to get back to your cars, you should go with a police escort. In Canada. Yeah. In Toronto. Mm-hmm. Elderly Jews cannot go back to their cars without a police escort. If it was up to me, I would hold York University to account for that. There, there was a failure on the, on the part of the administration. So when did it, it kind of, were you in the moment there thinking this is just like uh, how things unfolded at home? Or did it kind of occur to you later? And, and what did you hope to get across to readers by writing about it? I wanted to get, well, these were exactly the kind of angry hateful demonstrations that I saw back in uh, back in Jordan. You know, in Syria, protests are very controlled. And even the protests that we did against the government were not this hateful. Mm. Were not this hateful. The slogans that we shouted in Syria, the slogans that we said in Syria were actually quite tame and they were quite organized. And they were actually just, you know, uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't as hateful as what I saw at York. At York was the most hateful demonstration I'd seen in my life. It exceeded anything I had seen in Jordan. Now, Jordan has a very large Palestinian population, and they're always going out uh, demonstrating against uh, Zionism, and uh, especially, on, especially on university campuses. But this level of hatred and anger, I'd never, honestly, even in the Arab world, I promise to God, no exaggeration, I had never seen this level of anger before. This had exceeded anything that I'd seen back in the Arab world. So, so, Tom, I want to turn to you and ask, I mean, you've, you've, you interact and encounter a lot of refugees. I'm curious if, if they 
kind of have this same kind of horrified reaction when they see this kind of expression, this level of expression in whatever country they might be resettled in? You mean horrified by 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 this kind of negative reaction to to Israel and to Jews, you mean? Right. And also just the the passion of it. I, and I, I think passion might be a euphemism <laughs> in this situation. I really think, um, and, and again, I'm talking about my personal experience and our experiences at Israel. We 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 encounter the opposite. People want when 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 it's people to people, um, you know, people really want to interact with the other side. People really want to bring build bridges. I definitely um, could identify with Abu's experience in the sense that um, a lot, I, I guess a lot of the people who were demonstrating were not it, definitely not refugees and not um, and not even from Arabic origin. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels to me in many cases, and we're really doing everything we can at this rate to avoid politics. We really want to do our work. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to say also um, non-political. But I do think that a lot of people, if they would see uh, the interaction and the bridges that are built between um, Israelis and Palestinians on our staff and the Syrian refugees, um, I, I do think that it may change their perspective. I think a lot of people are speaking out of ignorance and they and I wish that they they you know they divert all these energies and anger and and passion towards actually building bridges between people and there are so many great organizations like Israel but also a lot of other organizations um, in the Middle East that are that are working on both the humanitarian and and the building bridges part I wish they would um, put their energy to that to something positive I don't think this kind of demonstration or protest gets us any step closer to peace or to coexistence or to reconciliation so um, yeah. I think we're we're really on the same side I'm really on the same side with with Abud on that yeah. So, Abu, you talked about your coll- your own college experiences in Jordan and growing up in Syria. I mean, were you raised to hate Israel? Uh, and and if so, what changed those views for you? Absolutely. And it wasn't just in Syria. I also grew up in Saudi Arabia. I actually spent half my childhood uh, in Syria and half my childhood in Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia, they teach you a uh, a strict Wahhabi interpretation of uh, of Islam. The one Shakespeare play that is taught in all Arab schools, I don't think you need to guess, you know, you don't need to guess which one. It's The Merchant of Venice. Uh-huh. That is the one Shakespeare play that is taught in all the Arab schools that I've heard of. Anti-Semitism is just taken as normal. It's just normal. You don't even question it when you're in Saudi Arabia or, or Syria. Um, Anti-Zionism, anti-Israel. I mean, I, I was always taught that Israel was founded by European settlers who came in 1948 and took over Palestinian land. I had no idea that the Jewish connection to the land goes back thousands of years. I had absolutely no idea. I had no idea that Hebron was so important to the Jewish people. I don't think even 99% of uh, Arabs would, uh, would know that. When did you learn that? Just in the past year. Oh, wow. Okay. Just in the past year. I've, uh, I've bought, I bought some, uh, I've have, I have like two bookshelves of, uh, on books on Jewish history and uh, Jewish topics. Um, you asked me, when did my views change? Well, this would have been late when I was in Syria in 2013, when I started to read stories that uh, the IDF was helping Syrian refugees. And I'd always heard that even before that, uh, Israeli NGOs were going into Jordan and helping uh, Syrian refugees uh, over there uh, as well. And it absolutely amazed me. Because, you know, in Syria, if you get shot, if you go to a hospital, they got to make sure that you weren't shot by the government 
or, or by the army before they'll treat you. If, uh, if you're a rebel, if you're a demonstrator, uh, you know, protesting, you get shot, none of the hospitals will treat you in Syria. Huh. In Syria, in the Arab world, where you see the idea that you do not treat your enemies. Yeah. That is what we're used to. Mm -hmm. And Syria was the most implacable enemy of Israel since the, since the day that both countries were founded. So you were hearing about this, and then now did you did you meet um, an Israeli? Did you meet someone who was Jewish at that time? Uh, no, this was when I was in Syria, and so in 2013, late uh, in latest, late 2013, I moved to Turkey, and then the uh, there was there was there was one of I was I, I started a blog when I was in Turkey to inform people about what was going on in Syria. So at one point, at one point, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went and visited the wounded Syrians on the Golan. And the Syrian opposition, I don't remember what their name is, the National Council, whatever their name is, the, the supposed official opposition, Syrian opposition, they got so angry, they put out a statement saying that Netanyahu shouldn't be exploiting wounded Syrians, and blah, 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 Israel is our enemy, and I got so furious. That, that was a breaking point for me. That was a breaking point for me. I got so furious at the Syrian opposition. So I wrote a blog post, I was saying, I, I told them, directed at them, I told them, Israel is helping our people, and you can't even say thank you? Why can't you just say thank you? Why would anybody trust us in the future if we can't even say thank you to our supposed enemies? They're not our enemies. They are not our enemies. They've proven that they're not our enemies. So who was the first Israeli or, or first right. Jew who okay. you met? So the first Israeli I met would, be, would have been, I think, believe in 2015. He's Mr. Bombs. He's an Israeli uh, researcher, very well known in, uh, in security circles for, his, for the research and papers that he's done on the Arab world. And uh, he was visiting Istanbul. And he was uh, the first Israeli I'd, uh, I'd actually uh, ever met. And he was very, very familiar with events in Syria, even better than myself. He was, he was much better informed than anybody else I'd met on, on events in Syria. Actually, is a, near is a good friend and a partner. I'll text him now. I'll tell him we're, we're talking. We've worked together on a number of projects, both uh, um, to support Syrian refugees in Greece and also um, in some of our work around education, because we're also doing a lot of educational programs um, in the U.S. and in other countries about um, the Syrian refugee crisis. So uh, uh, I was very uh, surprised and happy to hear a name of a good friend. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for joining us. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Naomi Steinberg is the Vice President for Policy and Advocacy at HIAS, the Hebrew Immigration and Aid Society, one of nine refugee resettlement agencies in the United States and the primary Jewish agency for refugees. Last month, HIAS and two other faith-based agencies took President Trump to court over his recent executive order requiring states to opt in if they want to accept refugees. So far, only 13 states have opted in, though they expect and hope that number will grow. Naomi is here to discuss what the order and other restrictions on refugee resettlement mean for the Jewish community. Naomi, welcome. So given the reduction of the cap on refugee resettlement here in the United States, how has that affected HIAS in particular and also the refugees that many agencies resettle here? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I would pivot quickly to the latter part of the question because the top priority really is how this is affecting refugees. When we talk about the refugee admissions target, also known as the presidential determination, we talk in cold numbers. We talk about this year's number of 18,000 and last year's number 
was 30,000 and the year prior to that was 45. You can see its success going down each year. But what those numbers don't really tell the story of are the families that are separated, of the lives that are left in precarious situations. These are real people, real human beings who are being torn apart from their families because of policy decisions that are being made in Washington, D.C. So our top priority as an organization that works on behalf of forcibly displaced people around the world is making sure that refugees have access to this refugee resettlement program, this life-saving program, and that families are able to be reunited through this program. It is a cornerstone of our refugee resettlement tradition in this country. Top priority are the refugees who are personally impacted by this. But of course, as an organization that is one of the nine national uh, partners with the U.S. government um, to implement this program, of course this has an impact on us. And one of the primary ways in which we've been impacted is as the American Jewish Communities International Refugee Organization, we are deeply rooted in the American Jewish community. We could not do our work without them. And so we have seen around the country an outpouring of interest and concern about what is happening to this program. And some of the ways that our community members get involved, certainly through advocacy and certainly through public actions, but they're really concrete ways that members of the Jewish community help to welcome refugees. Synagogues around the country are looking for ways to support incoming refugees. And that's simply is not so easy to do anymore because resettled refugees are not coming in in any significant numbers. This attack on our Jewish values, primarily that of welcoming the stranger. We all have refugee backgrounds in our family histories. We are not so far removed from these stories ourselves. So an attack on the US refugee resettlement program is an attack on who we are, our very core of an American Jewish community. So we have felt that impact deeply and we are continuing to stand up and speak out on behalf of refugee resettlement in that country. Did HIAS have to close um, not offices but end refugee resettlement programs in various locations across the country because of the reduced cap? So this is a bigger challenge than just for HIAS. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, we are one of the nine national refugee resettlement agencies. We partner with the U.S. government in the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And across the network, multiple refugee resettlement offices have closed. The way this works is there are the nine national resettlement agencies, but we all work with a network of local organizations around the country. And so prior to this administration, um, there were about 100 more of those local offices doing local refugee resettlement work than there are now. So there has been a precipitous drop. Um, HIAS's network has been relatively lucky, but this is, as I said, this is about more than HIAS. This is about the overall strength of the program. And we have seen many of these local organizations need to shut down because of the reduction in refugee arrivals. Okay. So now the cap stands at 18,000 for year 2020. Is that correct? Yes, for fiscal year 2020. So from October 1 through September 30th. Okay. And so that has not been the only development in this past year. Um, There has also been an executive order signed having to do with refugee resettlement in different states and cities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure thing. So in September, the administration issued another executive order, which is really designed to hamstring refugee resettlement and refugee welcome in this country. At its core, what this executive order says is that in order for resettlement to continue in any given state and locality, 
the governor of that state and the chief county executive or the equivalent thereof must proactively provide in writing consent to allow resettlement to continue. This is a complete change to the way the program has worked since its formalization in um, 1980. It's a radical departure. And what is deeply frustrating about this is we know that this is really just another effort to politicize refugees and refugee settlements. It is essentially a backdoor, behind the scenes kind of way of shutting down the program again. It is a state by state, county by county refugee ban. And so we are deeply concerned about this, not the least of which is because it's also unnecessary. States and counties are already deeply involved with the US Refugee Resettlement Program. Refugee resettlement agencies are in regular consultation with their county and state um, colleagues. It's just baked into the program. It is an essential part of how the program operates. So this purports to strengthen um, the input from elected officials in states and counties. It's just a disingenuous claim because that type of engagement has already existed for many, many years. So Hyas, along with two other resettlement organizations, is suing the Trump administration over this, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And so I guess what are the states, how are the states and cities responding and receiving this executive order so far? The reason that Hyas decided to litigate is because the executive order is not only an abdication of federal authority, but it also really flies in the face of the American and Jewish values that guide us, not just as an organization, but our community and our long history of helping refugees start their lives fresh in the United States. Because as I said, this executive order really is in effect a state-by-state, city-by-city refugee ban. And so what we are seeing though is that the response to this has been swift. We are seeing states, we are seeing governors, we are seeing county executives speak out and say, yes, we support refugee resettlement in our communities. We stand firmly behind this program. And so we have been really pleased to see that. But the work is not done because every single place where resettlement takes place now has to have consent from the county executive and the governor. And this is an incredibly cumbersome process. And the onus on collecting this consent falls onto the resettlement agencies. So the work before us is great. We do not have a lot of time. And the clock is ticking because we have to gather the consent by we, I mean the resettlement agencies on a fairly expedited timeline. And so this is an all-consuming task for the resettlement agencies because we need to make sure that resettlement continues in as many communities as possible. And we really are facing yet again another existential threat to the refugee resettlement program in this country. So I read a wonderful article in the Washington Post about how Utah's governor actually requested more refugees. And from the tone of that article, it appeared that the executive order was perhaps even rendered moot because the states and cities, the tone has been shifting, really. And even those that lean Republican aren't in favor of this approach to refugee resettlement and are actually pushing back against it. Is that an overstatement? Well, I wouldn't say that this support makes the executive order moot. We are so pleased to see that Republican governors and county executives have been speaking out in support of resettlement in their communities. We are not surprised by that because we know that refugee resettlement is in fact not a partisan issue, that people from both parties have been deeply supportive of this program since the very start. And so we're not surprised to see it because we understand the reality of how 
refugee resettlement really works in this country. And we know the political debates here in Washington, D.C. do not reflect the reality of how resettlement works in the local communities. That said, as pleased as we are to see the handful of Republican governors, including North Carolina, Utah, Massachusetts, stand up and speak out and say that we want refugee resettlement to continue, there are states across the country for which we still have not received consent. So with that list needs to grow. That list needs to grow exponentially. So it's a great start, but we have a lot of work ahead of us. How many states have not given their consent? The vast majority. Okay, okay. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for giving us an update on the refugee resettlement situation here in the United States, and thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And this week at our Shabbat Table, we're joined by Sarah Tuttle-Singer, the new media editor at The Times of Israel. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what will you be talking about? Well, Sefi, Sarah, for the first time this winter, school was canceled in our suburb because we had five whole inches of snowfall. Listeners in Chicago understand the frustration in my voice. Five inches. It's barely a flurry. Alas, I do have children now, and I can't complain about a little extra daylight to sled down our steep driveway with my son. In fact, while we were sledding, my son asked if I could take him ice skating this season. So ice skating has been on my mind and will probably come up at our Shabbat table this week. Perhaps you've heard about Jason Brown, the Jewish-American figure skater who just won a silver medal for skating the part of the score from Schindler's List. Raised Jewish, Jason said it's something he's always wanted to do but needed to be mature enough before he did. As a performer, he said part of his job is to teach and to get people engaged in the story he's trying to tell on the ice. In other words, one must possess the passion and respect for that story and perform with the right amount of intensity to get that message across— Now, as a storyteller, I really admire that perspective. Of course, Jason Brown is not the first skater to use this music, nor is he the only skater using it this season. In November, Russian figure skater Anton Shulipov also skated to the score, but his routine included a major mistake, and I don't mean slipping on the ice. He wore a costume that resembled the uniform worn by Nazi guards at Auschwitz and a big yellow Star of David across his chest. Ooh, that makes me uncomfortable. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. To add insult, the International Skating Union listed the costume as a contender in the best costume category, which fans get to judge. Oh, and judge they did. The backlash was so fierce that the union removed it from the ballot right away. Now, Shulipov likely intended his performance to be a tribute. I give the benefit of the doubt in all cases. But how best to pay tribute in ice skates to six million Jews slaughtered across Europe? That can be tricky. Who is allowed to use the sacred symbols tied to the Holocaust? And are there inappropriate platforms to tell that story? I also have to wonder if the answer to those questions are evolving. No one said a word in 1994 when American skater Paul Wiley and German skater Katarina Witt both used the Schindler's List scores in the World Championship. Fast forward more than two decades. Last year, German figure skater Nicole Schott placed 18th at the Winter Olympics for her Schindler's List routine, but got skewered on social media. Perhaps because she was German, perhaps because she was not Jewish, perhaps because social media exists. Is that really fair? I mean, it's been 75 years since World War II. I don't know the answer. I mean, just listen. (laughs) 
That is Jason Brown's opening move to his routine. John Williams' score to Schindler's List is a beautiful, exquisite piece of music, a soul-wrenching ode to the victims of the Holocaust. And Jason Brown's grace on ice does tell a powerful story that is all too quickly at risk of being forgotten. But back to my original point. When I think about taking my son to the ice skating rink, I love the idea of introducing him to a winter sport. But I also love the idea of introducing him to an art form one that some athletes have chosen to pay homage to what they believe is important, as long as he learns to do it in a way that inspires conversations about sensitivity, respect, and history. And that is what we will be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Thank you, Manya. Sarah, what's your Shabbat table talk this weekend? Manya, Sefi, thank you so much for having me at your Shabbos table. I'm really delighted to be here. I love Shabbat. I've been celebrating it since I was born. You know, even actually before I was born, when my mom found out she was pregnant, she and my dad decided to observe Shabbat and they would light the candles and make kiddush and welcome the angels in with, while singing Shalom Aleichem. It was this very special family time and a tradition that they passed on to me and one I'm sharing with my kids. Although we've made some tweaks on the tradition and just before sunset and candle lighting, we go out into the fields with our old scotch canisters and we have a drum circle because that's just how we roll over here in Israel. Look, I'm lucky I grew up in this warm, embracing home that measured time in Hanukkah candles and Sabbath candles and in our other holy days and holidays. And growing up that way gave me a sense of my history, my present day peoplehood and the future that I envision as a Jewish woman. Now, I know there's been a lot of surveys. Pew recently released something and other folks have too. And there's a lot of discussion about the future of diaspora Jewry and and especially non-Orthodox diaspora Jewry and what happens if Jewish people marry non-Jews? Will they leave the tribe? And I know there's concern and some real worries about that, but I want to share my perspective So I grew up in this Jewish home, in this warm and loving Jewish home full of tradition. And I mean, so much so that I actually made Aliyah and I'm now living in Israel. And my dad is not Jewish. He was born into an Episcopalian family. He was a choir boy, went to church every Sunday, celebrated Christmas. And when he married my mother, he never converted. But he did agree to keep a Jewish home with my mother and to raise any children that they might have as Jews. And his family got aligned and they were supportive. But more importantly, my mother's family was aligned, more than aligned, actually. They didn't just accept my father, they embraced him. And they made Judaism something warm and welcoming in such a way that my father's the one who insisted that every Saturday we read um, commentary from the Gunter Plaut on the on the week's Parsha and that he would go to uh, the rabbi's Torah study. In fact, when the rabbi went off to China for the summer, my father took over the Torah study. And that my dad was that kind of person, but also he's not necessarily exceptional. I think the reason why it went so well for my father and my mother and ultimately for me and now for my children is because my mother's folks embraced him and embraced the possibility that my mother was not marrying out. My father was marrying in. Thank you again for having me at this Shabbos table. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. This week, I spotted a Facebook post by a friend of mine who's a journalist at the New York Jewish Week, and she was pointing out that 
when we reach New Year's at the end of the month, it will be the close of the second decade of the 2000s. And she asked, what do you, you all her Facebook followers, what do you think were the biggest stories, the biggest Jewish stories of this decade? And I was scrolling through endless comments, finding myself, as is usual on Facebook, agreeing with some and wildly disagreeing with others. But I just wanted to bring some of them here because I know that I'll be bringing this question to my Shabbat table. So here are just a few of the answers in no particular order. Me Too issues in the Jewish world, a new era of Israeli diplomatic engagement, particularly in Central Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, new challenges for Israel with some of its traditional allies, America inventing flavored hummus, anti-Semitic mass murders in the U.S. and Europe, a Jewish golden age of television, Jews running as plausible candidates for president, the controversy over egalitarian prayer at the Kotel, J-Swipe, the kidnapping and murder of Naftali Frankel, Eyal Yifrach, and Gilad Sha'er, and the subsequent events of the summer of 2014 in Israel and the Palestinian territories, gourmet kosher food, seemingly everyone becoming gluten-free, the continued rise and mainstreaming of intermarriage in the American Jewish community, the 2013 portrait of Jewish Americans from the Pew Research Center, and Gal Gadot becoming Wonder Woman. All of these things are important in their own way, but I'm sure that there are so many more things out there that could be the biggest story of the decade. So listeners, please go ahead and send us an email at peopleofthepod at ajc.org and suggest what you think was the biggest Jewish story of the decade. If we get enough answers, maybe we'll put them together and do something with it as a a wrap-up show before the end of the year. Um, So that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 